Chapter 3 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Troutwine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 3 Hydrophobic Skunk by Irvin S. Cobb. The hydrophobic skunk resides at the extreme bottom of the Grand Canyon, and next to a southern republican who never asked for a federal office is the rarest of living creatures he is so rare that nobody ever saw him that is nobody except a native i met plenty of tourists who had seen people who had seen him but never a tourist who had seen him with his own eyes in addition to being rare he is highly gifted i think almost anybody will agree with me that the common ordinary skunk is the most richly dowered by nature to adorn a skunk with any extra qualifications seems as great of a waste of raw material as painting a lily or gilding refined gold he is already amply equipped for outdoor pursuits nobody intentionally shoves him around everybody gives him as much room as he seems to need he commands respect nay more than that respect and veneration wherever he goes joy riders never run him down and foot passengers avoid crowding him into a corner you would think nature had done amply well by the skunk but no the hydrophobic skunk comes along and upsets all these calculations besides carrying the traveling credentials of an ordinary skunk he is rabid in the most rabidismous form he is not mad just part of the time like one's relatives by marriage and not mad most of the time like the old-fashioned railroad ticket agent but mad all of the time incurably enthusiastically and unanimously mad he is mad and he is glad of it we made the acquaintance of the hydrophobic skunk when we rode down hermit trail the casual visitor to the grand canyon first of all takes the rim drive then he essays bright angel trail which is sufficiently scary for his purposes until he gets used to it and after that he grows more adventurous and tackles hermit trail which is a marvel of corkscrew convolutions gimleting its way down the red abdominal wound of the canyon to the very gizzard of the world here johnny our guide felt moved to speech and we hearkened to his words and hungered for more for johnny knows the ranges of the northwest as a city dweller knows his own little side of the street in the fall of the year johnny comes down to the canyon and serves as a guide for a while and then when he gets so he just can't stand associating with tourists any longer he packs up his war bags and journeys back to the northern range and enjoys the company of cows a spell cows are not exactly exciting but they don't ask full questions a highly competent young person is johnny and a cowpuncher of parts most of the canyon guides are cowpunchers accomplished ones too and of high standing in the profession with a touch of reverence johnny pointed out to us sam scovel the greatest bronco buster of his time now engaged in piloting tourists can he ride echoed johnny in an answer to our question scovel could ride an earthquake if she stood still long enough for him to mount he rode steamboat not young steamboat but old steamboat he rode rocking chair and he's the only man that ever did and was not called upon in a couple of days to attend his own funeral we went on and on at a lazy mule trot hearing the unwritten annals of the range from one who had seen them enacted at first hand pretty soon we passed a herd of burrows with mealy dusty noses and spotty hides 
feeding on prickly pears and rock lichens. And just before sunset we slid down the last acclivity out upon the plateau and came to a camp as was a camp. This was roughing it deluxe with the most deluxe vengeance. Here were three tents, or rather three canvas houses with wooden half walls, and they were spick and span inside and out, and had glass windows in them and doors and matched wooden floors. The mess tent was provided with a table with a clean cloth to go over it, and there were china dishes and china cups and shiny knives, forks, and spoons. Bill was in charge of the camp, a dark, rangy, good-looking leading man of a cowboy, wearing his blue shirt and red handkerchief with an air. That Johnny certainly could cook. Served on china dishes upon a cloth-covered table, we had mounds of fried steaks and shoals of fried bacon and a bushel, more or less, of sheep herder potatoes and green peas and sliced peaches out of cans and sourdough biscuits as light as kisses and much more filling, and fresh butter and fresh milk and coffee as black as your hat and strong as sin. How easy is it for a civilized man to become primitive and comfortable in his way of eating, especially if he had just ridden ten miles on a buckboard and nine more on a mule and is away down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? and there is nobody to look disapprovingly when he takes a bite that would be a credit to a steam shovel. Despite all reports to the contrary, I wish to state that it is no trouble at all to eat green peas off a knife blade. You merely mix them in with potatoes for cement. And fried steak? Take it from an old steak eater. Tastes best when eaten with those tools of nature's own providing. Both hands and your teeth. An hour passed, busy yet pleasant, and we were both gorged the gills and had reared back with our cigars lit to enjoy a third jorum of black coffee apiece. When Johnny, speaking in an offhand way to Bill, who was still hiding away biscuits inside of himself like a parlor prestidigitator, said, Seen any of them hydrophobies in the last day or two? Not so many, said Bill casually. There was a couple out last night perooting around in the moonlight. I reckon, though, there'll be quite a flock of them out tonight. A new moon always seems to fetch em up from the river. Both of us quit blowing on our coffee, and we put the cups down. I think I was the one who spoke. I beg your pardon, I asked. But what did you say would be out tonight? We were just speaking to one another about them hydrophobic skunks, said Bill apologetically. This here canyon is where they mostly hang out and frolic round. I laid my cigar down, too, I admit. I was interested. Oh, I said softly, like that. Is it, do they? Yes, said Johnny. I reckon there's liable to be one coming shoving his old nose into that door any minute. Or probably two. They mostly travels in pairs, sets, as you may say. You'd know one the minute you saw one, though, said Bill. They're smaller than the regular skunk and spotted where the other kind is strapped. And they got little red eyes. You won't have no trouble at all recognizing one. It was at this juncture that we both got up and moved back by the stove. It was warmer there, and the chill of the evening seemed to be settling down noticeably. Funny thing about them hydrophobic skunks, went Johnny after a moment of pensive thought. Mad, you know. What makes them mad? The two of us asked the question together. Born that way, explained Bill. Mad from the start. Won't never do nothing to get shut of it. Um... They never attack humans, I suppose. Don't they? Said Johnny, as if surprised at such ignorance. Why, humans is their favorite pastime. 
Humans is just pie to a hydrophobic skunk. It ain't really any fun to be bit by a hydrophobic skunk, neither. He raised his coffee cup to his lips and imbited deeply. Which you certainly said something then, Johnny, stated Bill. You see, he went on, turning to us, they aim to catch you asleep, and they creep up right soft and take hold of you, take hold of a year usually, and clamp their teeth and just hang on for further orders. Some says they hang on till the thunders, same as snapping turtles. But that's a lie, I judge, because there's weeks on a stretch down here that it don't thunder. All the cases I ever heard, they let go at sunup. It is right painful at the time, said Johnny, taking up the thread of the narrative, and then in nine days you go mad yourself. Remember that fellow the hydrophobic skunk bit down here by the rapids, Bill? Williams, supplied Bill. Heck, Williams. I saw him at Flagstaff when they took him to the hospital. That guy certainly did carry on regardless. First he went mad and his eyes turned red, and he got so he didn't even have no real use for water. Well, them prospectors don't never care much about water anyway. And then he got to snapping and a-biting and a-foaming, so they had to strap him down to the bed. He got loose, though. Broke loose, I suppose. No, he bit loose, said Bill, with an air of one who would not deceive you even in the matter of small details. Do you mean to say he bit those leather straps in two? No, sir. He couldn't reach them, explained Bill. So he bit the bed in two. Not in one bite, of course. He went on. It took him several. I saw him after he was laid out. He really wasn't no credit to himself as a corpse. I'm not sure, but I think my companion and I were holding hands by now. Outside, we could hear that little lost echo laughing to itself. It was no time to be laughing either. Under certain circumstances, I don't know of a lonelier place anywhere on earth than that Grand Canyon. Presently, my friend spoke and it seemed to me his voice was a mite husky. Well, he had a bad cold. You said they mostly attack persons who are sleeping out, didn't you? That's right, too, said Johnny, and Bill nodded in affirmation. Then, of course, since we sleep indoors, everything will be all right, I put in. Well, yes and no, answered Johnny. In the early part of the evening, the hydrophobia is liable to do a lot of prowling around outdoors. But toward morning, they like to get into camps. They dig up under the side walls and come up through the floor. And they seem to prefer to get in bed with you. They're cold-blooded, I reckon, same as rattlesnakes. Cool nights always drive them in, seems like. It's going to be sort of coolish tonight, said Bill casually. It certainly was. I don't remember a chillier night in years. My teeth were chattering a little, from cold, before we turned in. I retired with all my clothes on, including my boots and leggings, and I wish I had brought along my earmuffs. I also buttoned my watch into my left-hand shirt pocket. The idea being that if for any reason I should conclude to move during the night, I would be fully equipped for traveling. The door would not stay closely shut. The door jam had sagged a little and the wind kept blowing the door ajar. But after a while, we dozed off. It was 1.27 a.m. when I woke to a violent start. I know this was the exact time, because that was when my watch stopped. I peered about me in the darkness. The door was wide open. I could tell that. Down on the floor there was a dragging, scuffling sound. And from almost beneath me, a pair of small red eyes peered up phosphorescently. He's here! I said to my companion as I emerged from my blankets, and he, waking instantly, seemed instinctively to know whom I meant. 
I used to wonder at the ease of which a cockroach can climb a perfectly smooth wall and run across the ceiling. I know now that this is the easiest thing to do in the world, if you have the proper incentive behind you. I had gone up one wall of the tent and crossed over and was in the act of coming down the other side when Bill burst in, his eyes blurred with sleep, and lighted a lamp in one hand and a gun in the other. I never was so disappointed in my life because it wasn't a hydrophobic skunk at all. It was a pack rat, sometimes called a trade rat, paying us a visit. The pack, or trade rat, is also a denzian of the Grand Canyon. He is about four times as big as an ordinary rat and has an appetite to correspond. He sometimes invades your camp and makes free with your things. But he never steals anything outright, but merely trades with you, hence the name. He totes off a side of meat or a bushel of meal and brings a cactus stalk in, or he will confiscate your saddlebags and leave you in exchange a nice dry chip. He is honest, but from what I can gather, he never gets badly stuck on a deal. Next morning at breakfast, Johnny and Bill were doing a lot of laughing between them over something or other. End of chapter 3, Hydrophobic Skunk. Recording by Kurt Trotwine.